No maira engai te motu, I'm Julian Wilcox and welcome to Indigenous 100, the podcast series where we interview 100 of the most inspiring Indigenous thought leaders from around the world. Before we get into today's episode, a big mihi to te maangai pāho who have funded this series of Indigenous 100. Nā te maangai pāho, te pūtea tautoko, e re re aurorangi atuana ngā mihi, kia kūtou katoa. Thank you so much for the support of the podcast and all the Indigenous content you fund. Today's episode is special indeed. She is of Te Rarawa descent, from the Hokianga, but born and bred in Whakapara, of the North. She is the Tumuaki and Head of Department of Māori Health at the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland, Waipapa Taumata Rau. Yes, an Indigenous thought leader, inspirational, but also someone who has committed over 40 years of service to leading Māori health science. An analyst, but also someone who has a great love for our people and the ongoing pursuit for rangatiratanga, crafted out of her experience in Auckland in the 1970s and 80s through many protest movements. Here is today's episode of Indigenous 100. It's Ahorangi, Professor Paparangi Reid on Indigenous 100. It's great to have you with us on Indigenous 100. Paparangi, where does that name come from? It's the name of my great-great-grandfather, my grandmother's grandfather, Atama Paparangi, ah. no mitimiti, e hokianga. Mm. He, did he live till he was 100 or something like that? Mm. Around that, who, who knows when he was born, mm. you know, but yeah, that's what is recorded. This is the famous Atama Paparangi, Goldie portrait, Atama mm. Paparangi, te tau Maui, mm-hmm. te oh wow. Six foot three? Something like that. Not small, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My grandmother was tall as well, yeah. Wow. So you're, so you're Tatao Maui, Miti Miti mm-hmm. huh? Did you grow up there? No. Oh. Um, my, uh, my grandmother married um, I Creed, her second husband, after her first husband drowned in Hokianga uh, in the harbour, um, and they moved... Um, to Awarua, up um, further towards Manukau. So that's where um, my father grew up there. And then he, when he came back from World War II, he uh, wasn't in the battalion at that time. He was in the 8th Army, and so he actually got a rehab block. Um, and so we grew up in Whakapara. Ah. The family still own the block? No. Ah. No, it was a oh, long story. Uh, it was uh, the family farm was divided with the draining of the Hikurangi Swamp. Oh, okay. And part of it was you know, taken for the drainage. So, were any of the whanau, I mean, your siblings, were any of them farmers? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Two brothers, farmers, two younger brothers. So, how did you end up in health? I escaped from <laughs> rural living, vowed never to even date a farmer. <laughs> Because, um, yeah, I'd milked enough cows in my life. That was not for me. Yeah. So, um, and I guess, um, you know, we are all, a lot of us have our careers designed by our parents. And um, my mother was a a typist, a shorthand typist for the CIB in Whangarei. And um, and so she was very interested in in forensics, you know, in, in that element of life in in the CIB work. And so she said to me, pathology is really interesting. <laughs> and I'm going, really? Uh, but, you know, she kept talking about health and medicine. And so both my parents were very keen on um, education. All six of us have some form of tertiary education, which was big at that time. And so, um, yeah, she kept going, <laughs> health, medicine. Wow. 
I do, I do want to talk about your tertiary education a bit more, but just to come back to mum, where's mum from? Mum's an English war bride, or was an English war bride. Um, yes, she met a handsome Māori in London, and that was that. So she ended up coming to Aotearoa. It's a big move for a, you know, a Pākehā war bride to come to Aotearoa. Live yeah. on the farm in Whakapara. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think, um, well, it's a long, interesting story. Interesting love story of that time. Um, she, because um, she... She grew up in Egypt because her father was in the British Army at that time, and so she had this very upper middle class um, life with servants and whatever, and she worked in the war office during the war, and so she met um, Dad and some other guys from the battalion in a, in a bar, and um, uh, and they... There's all good love stories, uh, though. <laughs> it went like that, and... Um, uh, and so eventually it was a bit backwards and forwards about whether they was too big a move. Mm. Um, when um, she, as the story goes, when she, um, they sort of broke off and then um, Dad's mother, so my grandmother, uh, wrote to her and said, you know, someone's, someone's missing you, so why don't you come for a visit? Oh. And so this Māori queer from... Hokianga invited mum to come for a visit. So she came with, I think, many, a whole boatload of war brides came. And so she got off the boat, she got on the train, she got off the train, she got on, you know, eventually went up the river. And, um, yeah, she stayed for a while and they got married. Wow. Yeah, so it was it's a bit of an interesting story. But I, I imagine there's lots of interesting stories about yeah. that time yeah. and the travel and the commitment in the distance. But I think what your grandmother did is Pretty extraordinary. Mm. And what was their relationship like? Because it would have been interesting for, as I say, for a Pākehā war bride to come and not just be in a Māori community, but, you know, um, our, our Māori grandmothers have high expectations. She um, always called her Mrs Reed. always referred to her as Mrs Reed. She thought she was very flash. I like... So mum, this is your mum about My mum thought my grandmother was uh, a woman of amazingly high standards and class. So, you know, mum was no doubt a classist person and she um, felt that uh, my grandmother was had mana. Mm. So were there quite high expectations of you and your siblings, even in your childhood, as a result of that? Well, yes, fuck up up from Atama. But also, um, you know, hearing what your mother said about your grandmother. Were you aware of those kind of were there high expectations and were you aware of them? Um expectations changed as we moved further away from, you know, uh, from home, yeah. I suppose, and moved onto a farm. So you have different expectations. Um, but there was always an expectation of education, always an expectation of, yeah, doing, doing the right thing, always an expectation of having some level of um, decorum or, you know, class or something, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you have a choice to go to university or was it just this is what you were doing as a result of mum's it, encouragement? It was a little... See, my father, um, my grandmother had um, sold some land to send all of her sons, but not her daughters, uh, she couldn't afford the daughters, to go to one year at um, Hato Petara, actually. So all her sons had one year of secondary education. And and her, her oldest, Uncle Harold, her child from her first marriage, he actually went to Canterbury University and he became an engineer. So even though he had to study that extramurally, it was a British degree. Um, but when he when he graduated, he actually couldn't get a job because he was Māori, even mm. though... And so he worked on the railways for a while and um, even though he had better qualifications than the minister and everybody else in charge of railways. So, so yeah actually designed one of the um, 
one of the, what are they called? At, at the Ellerslie race course, he designed one of the places where people sit, yeah. The, st- the, st- the stands. And yeah. The, oh, the wow. Stands. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, so sh- even from my grandmother, she had an expectation that education is a very important key to moving forward. Okay. And Hato Petra, okay. obviously, Miti Miti Catholic. Got Absolutely. it. Okay. All right. Good school. Almost as good as another Māori boy oh, school. Yeah, in okay, my... <laughs> <laughs> um so, and I'm not trying to give away your age, but at, when did you attend varsity? What decade? Oh, um, in the 70s, okay. Oh, so there, so there was a lot happening in the 70s. It was, it was an amazing time. Auckland University. Um, yes, I did a science degree at Auckland University oh. first, yeah. What was that like? What was happening at the time? And yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing time to be a student. Um, I didn't realise it at first. I didn't get involved in it so much at first because I was like, woohoo, escape farm, uh, <laughs> and enjoying a life in the city, as one does. Um, uh, but it was a time, and when it was mainly when I, um, I, I spent two years in Otago and then came back. And during oh. that time, you know, the land march was happening, Hetawa was happening. Um, the black women's movement was happening. You know, even the women's movement was happening. Um, um, Takaparofa, yeah. Uh, so it, it was um, it was a busy time. It was fantastic. Black women's movement, Angela Davis and things like that, don't no, you? No, um, actually, you know, when the feminist movement happened here, oh, yeah. then, um, you know, I suppose we had um, Ngā Hui Te Awe Kōtsuku and we had Donna, Donna and, yeah. and um, Lee Pekka saying, actually... You fellas aren't doing it for us. You're doing it for you, and you're, you know, bound up in white supremacy. So, so then the we called ourselves the Black Women's Movement, but it ended up being the Māori and Pacific Women's Movement ah. here. Yeah, and of course we had um, nuclear free Pacific, um, and and then the year I was a sixth year medical student, we had of course the Springbok tour. Yeah. So. Busy time and amazing time to have your thinking stretched. How formative was that in terms of what you're doing now? But for that, you might have been doing something different, perhaps? Mm, I'm not sure I would have been doing anything different. I, I think it really has helped my analysis on on how do we think about Hawaii Māori. How? How has it helped that? Um because of having a critique on what's happening in our history, what's happening in the way in which um, colonisation has shaped our society, our values, um, equity, etc. Yeah. And I, I do want to pick up on the equity bit later on, but it seems to me that internationally uh, that you have recognition as almost being the monitor for things Māori health related, that people look to you, uh, both in Aotearoa and internationally, uh, as someone who can give that critique of the way in which health, our system, um, can be improved, should be developed. (laughs) Um, um, And... I'm wondering when you started to understand that that was the expectation or that that indeed was a perspective that people had of you. And what's that like when people see you in that way? Well, you know, um, it's never about a single person. And um, it was the year of, um, it was actually the day of the, um, the last Springbok test. And um, I was a sixth year medical student and, um, we went to we went to Wellington because Edu was launching Hauora, the first Hauora, and um, it, it was a dynamic day uh, because all our mates were protesting at Eden Park, and um, uh, I went with David Tipanilich and Colin Mantel. There was a few others that went from Auckland, but it was really interesting that um, the first Hauora was really just mortality statistics showing. And it was written in quite a, a devastating way that just said, we're doing worse. 
when actually um, I said, well, you know, there's no analysis here of the why and how. There's no analysis that, of course, we're doing worse. Everybody who's poor in a country is doing there's no uh, is doing worse than other people internationally. And so, why don't you have an analysis by socioeconomic status? By um, yeah, so that started that. Um, it was also interesting because at, on that occasion, um, Dr. Paiwai, who was my father's GP. <laughs> He stood up and left to go to the test. <laughs> and um, so I had to stand up and say, I, I disagree strongly that we attend the um, Springbok matches because this was the anniversary of Steve Biko's murder in prison. And surely what we're here, what we're here hold is about racism. And so we shouldn't be supporting this racist Springbok tour. Well... I can imagine how that might have gone down. Um, he did mention it to me later. <laughs> this is Doc Pyle. But that's Doc Palmer you're talking mm. about. What was, and you mentioned Eru, we're talking about Eru Pomare. Yeah. What was Eru Pomare's response? Oh, I think um, everyone was quite quiet and they immediately stopped for a cup of tea. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, what I had learned from being part of a movement, from being part of Māori sovereignty movement of that time, was the importance of saying no, of the importance of speaking up, of the importance of saying, we've got to think about this. I think that's, and the strength or the whatever it is to say, no, I've got to stand up and say something. Is it a voice on your shoulder? Or, or oh, no, what it's is a gut. It? It's a gut. Mm. It comes up and you say, oh, no, I've got to say something. There's, something's wrong here and you have to say something. And that, mm. Mason still mentions it to me occasionally. <laughs> okay. It's not many people who, David had gone to the loo, so, you know. <laughs> okay. And he comes back and says, what happened? I go, oh, no. But, um, so, yeah, the one of the, so that was the beginning of my analysis of just saying we've got different mortality, different death rates, just saying we've got different health outcomes is such a <clears throat> such a narrow analysis. It's not, um, it doesn't explain any of the causal pathway. It doesn't explain how did we get here. Why are we all pretty similar? Why is the Indigenous experience so leading to so uh, similar outcomes. So that led to this whole thing of, I guess for me it was really thinking about how. So I wanted to explore the how, and that was the interesting thing. And I wanted to explore it not just looking at Indigenous people, what's wrong with you? No, I want to explore the how in terms of the systems and the societal structures and the historical things that happen that led to it. The reason why I asked about Edu Pomare um, is because, I guess, and there may be a better way to put this, but he became a, a bit of a mentor. For yeah, he was a mentor, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> was he aware of the time of potentially the impact that you were going to have on the way in which we see the health system in New Zealand? Do you think he could see the divine pathway that had already been set to a certain degree in terms of your focusing on the how and following the how? Oh. Was there ever discussion about it? Oh, God, I think he put up with me because <coughs> there were so few of us around at the time. <laughs> he didn't have much choice. Do you really think that's true? Um, I don't think that's um, true. Oh, well, I'm sure it was a pain. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that's um, I'm of an age now where I can think about that in reflection of who are the students and the graduates in medicine who um, challenge me now and... Um, and how enjoyable, or, or otherwise that is. Well, you know, how, how, what an interesting time. I mean, um, you know, we've just been to a Māori health hui in the weekend and um, some of the, reflecting, some of the students who were the most challenging are the ones who, whose um, company and analysis I enjoy the most now. So I'm sure it's similar. <laughs> <laughs> what was he like? He was a... He was a um, a beautiful man, had a beautiful heart, uh, a very um, generous man, yeah. Um, 
He had a um, he had a great love for our people. Um, he was an excellent scientist and all that too, but um, that's one of the things he had love for our people. Mm. And I guess that's that's what you can that's the ultimate, isn't it? Mm. Do you, uh, um, he and again. I was a very, very junior reporter at the time that he passed away and it just felt like we lose so many of our people who love our people so much, very young. What was that like for you to have someone who was so influential pass away so yeah. early, so well, early? Well, for us who who worked in the research centre with him, he was the leader, um, it was OMG, you know, um, what do we do now? And the expectation was, you know, how do we move from here without um, that level of leadership? How do we fill, fill that gap? Because and, and we became quite tight, the group of us, um, Vera Keefe, Bridget Robson, um, and we became quite tight thinking about our analysis uh, and the work that we did. We were paralysed for a while in that space, but um, I think we really developed a good analysis out of that. Did you feel people pointing fingers and saying you're up? Um, in some ways, but um, there was still a big... Uh, um, I guess... We knew our work best. We knew our thinking best. Um, we had our network. Um, we could never be compared to his work, to Edu and his, you know, year, decades of work. But we had to... Um, he had trusted us with an analysis because we were then writing Whole Order 3 mm. And it was quite a different analysis um, with this analytical framework that we'd brought forward, thinking, how do we explain the causal pathway? Yeah, and so that was our challenge. And um, we had to step up, and, uh, uh, and but it was very much a group thing, um, yeah. And uh, we've learned so much. We we did the statistics. I was thinking of this the other day. We, we did the statistics. I mean, yep, we're pretty sure of the numbers. We double-check them. Um, and then we go, um, oh, Māori children death rate is lower. And then we go, that's not right, is it? <laughs> and, and through that, we found out the undercounting in Māori children's death, although being counted as Pākehā, because way in which death was registered at that time. And we go, oh, Māori have lower rates. Māori over the age of 65, for the people over the age of 65, Māori have lower rates of stroke. And we go, that's not right. Mm. And so then we learnt that that was because of the different age structure in the people over 65, so we had to have a different analysis of that age structure. So we, in that presentation of that, but we learnt so much, even though the stats had come out, even though the making of the stats was correct, the analytical frameworks and some of the data was wrong and it ex exposed that to us. So we learnt so much. Mm. And, um, you know, um, Vera's work in death certification and Bridget's work in the analysis, um, just amazing. Um, yeah. This is something that people warned me about with you. What's that? Is the art of deflection. And that when um, questions are posed about you and in particular leadership, you tend to focus on the collective. Um, and it had said to me, and I won't say by who, because um, it's from some people who are those young academic researchers that you've grown to admire and sometimes challenge you in their work, um, that... Um, that a lot of it actually comes down to the way in which you lead that collective, which enables the profound impact that you have. Because what you're talking about is actually re this revelation here that you come upon when you find this work and you undertake this research, which has profound consequences for us in the way that we can help shape policy and direction. 
And I wondered, A, what that was like when you come upon these this relevatory work, but B, um, that collectors need someone to help divine and point. Um, and it seems to me in a lot of that work that that's you. Um, and it's not so much, maybe that's the wrong thing I said about deflection, but do you understand, though, that someone needs to be at that point, that vanguard situation, to help drive that through? And a lot of that comes down on you and what that's like. Um, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> really? I, I don't know. I think that's... Um, that's I don't think that's a good model for us. I, um, Moana Jackson uh, wrote about the ethics, and he was t- talking about research, but he's, the first ethic of research he talked about was the recognition of prior thought. So I think that it's ethical to, um, to acknowledge, and I think actually we should do it as scientists, we should acknowledge, we should reference who had that little brain fart, who had that little gem of the idea that then we said, well, that's interesting, and it pushed us, all pushed one of us to come back in the next day and said, I thought of this, but actually, where did that prior thought come from? And I think it's really important to acknowledge and to recognise the contribution and the mana of the thinking that went from everybody. You know, I talk about Vera Keefe, but it was um, her mother. Nanny Sophie Keith, who would say something and we'd all look at each other and we'd go, boom, you know. And so I, I think it's really important to recognise the um, individual contributions in the collective. So I'm deflecting that question again because I can't even remember what it was. <laughs> but um, no, I think it's... Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's really important to acknowledge everybody's contribution because otherwise... Um, we would never get, it's very rare to have someone who's a singular brain box or a singular intellect or a singular, it's so much more collective. I think I understand. I think that um, that if we're doing work that is the benefit, of the benefit for the iwi, and we want to apply our way of doing things, that you also, in terms of the leadership model, also have to apply that in terms of the tickling of bringing that collective together to do, the, to do that work. Otherwise, we're in danger of following an international model, which is singular leadership, kind of Cabo model, not a circular kind of approach. Yeah. And then you're in danger of following the colonised process to actually drive what looks like an Indigenous, or drive yeah. Yeah. better Indigenous outcomes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there was a T-shirt that said, um, uh, where did those people go? I must find them. I'm their leader. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, um, I I just, um, I think it's part of our storytelling, part of our narrative to acknowledge and to tell the story of, you know, what Vera said at that moment what Bridget said in that analysis. How did we come together and think about it? You know, another time was um, at the time uh, we were, people were saying, we don't want any more statistics. They're all bad news. We don't want to hear the bad news, the bad stuff, blah, blah, blah. And so we had to have, um, how do we make, How do we see that um, ignoring statistics is part of colonisation of our mind? First of all, we do know numbers. Māori do have numbers. We do use numbers. We do have the value of statistics and research. Secondly, um, why are people trying to hide from those numbers? Those numbers are actually our whānau who died early. We should be talking about them, and just because they are now as a, a number one as opposed to, or a number 76, as opposed to um, a, a name, they're still, the tapu of that person is still in that number. You know, uh, Auntie Sophie, she, we were looking at the data for um, one of the cancers, and um, one of her sons had died, and she said, next time, that'll be Frank. Mm. She saw the people, the tapu of the people in those numbers. And that 
immediately we all looked at each other and went, that's it. That's, they are, they are people. They're not just numbers. And so we have to honour those people. So how do we then not make them repulsive? Because, and so we have to describe them in a way that's um, not deficit. So how do we have a non-deficit analysis? And, there, and you know, there's Bridget, she's reading the theory textbooks about that. So that was her way of bringing that in. So it was very much a collective yeah. thing, and we have to honour that. So how concerned are you, say, for example, 2018 census and the, and the lack of data? Actually, the way that that was mishandled and mismanaged, um, even access iwi, whānau, hapu want to be able to get data, to be able to tell their stories about their whānau communities and things like that. Data sovereignty, the you know, Indigenous data sovereignty group. How concerned are you about the lack of access Māori have to data to be able to, as you say, talk about those narratives, tell our stories, talk about the Franks? Yeah, it's... How do we get disappeared? Is that, is that what you think this is, that, no. that, that, that sits behind that? Um, well, um, And is that proactive, do you think? At the very least, it's, um, it's not caring enough about us to prioritise us. At the very least, it's that. At the very worst, it's deliberate. So somewhere in there, it's deliberate or accidental. But um, it's certainly not to Tūtiti. Mm. It's certainly not um, aimed at um, equity because we don't have good data anymore. We, our data, if we allow government to collect it, is um, not getting better, it's getting worse in terms of its quality. So our ability to monitor the Crown is getting worse rather than better. And I think there's an element where they don't want us to monitor them. Where, where do you think we are on that continuum? Is it closer to the deliberate, proactive, quote-unquote, disappearing, do you think? Um, I, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you going to be diplomatic in your answer? No, I'm, I'm not going to be diplomatic. I'm going to say that... Um, as you know, we are, um, hmm, I want to really go into um, Moana and Margaret Mutu's work on constitutional reform and um, say I, I really enjoyed their discussion of um, the three spaces, the rangatiratanga space, the kāwanatanga space and the relational space. Um, and so if we're talking about the um, kāwanatanga space, um, I'm really interested because that's where equity is. That's where we have to do, they have to do, we both have to do the kāwanatanga space because that's te tiriti o waitangi. That's Article 1. But it wasn't bad governance. It was hopefully good governance. So how do we hold the kāwanatanga to account for good governance? And that's where equity comes in. That is the monitoring framework of good governance. Mm -hmm. They think that doing some Māori stuff is over in the rangatiratanga. No, no, they have to do Māori stuff in the kāwanatanga because the kāwanatanga just doesn't exist for Pākehā people. Kāwanatanga is mote katoa. So uh, we have to make sure that in the kāwanatanga um, resources that there is equity. Equity doesn't exist, it's not existing for the rangatiratanga space. Mm -hmm. The rangatiratanga space is rangatiratanga. And, um, yeah, so it's really important to hold the government to account through monitoring and through equity. And we need to insist that they have good data so that we can monitor whether or not they are tiriti partners or not. Oh, that was a bit of a long way of saying it. No, 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 no. <laughs> Actually, that makes what I thought might be really complex, comprehensible. Um, because I've heard you say before that um, you see an equity like a coin, that uh, on one side is an equity and on the other side is privilege. Oh, absolutely. So, so is the relational bit trying to get the treaty partner to understand the privilege bit, which then enables a further and more developed conversation in the equity bit that helps us achieve Rangatiratanga? Oh, um, 
No, both exist in the Kawanapa okay. space. Because if you're not getting equity, somebody's getting privilege. If you're not getting your um, uh, rightful share of good governance, someone is getting your share as well as their share. What happens in the relational space? Um, well, um, Margaret and Moana say we have to we have to develop that space. At the moment, we've got the Crown trying to decide who should be in the relational space and maybe who decide which Māori would be nice Māori to go into the relational space as a partner. Um, and they even want to help design the rangatiratanga space. I think during COVID, we saw really active rangatiratanga space. I mean, we see it with Rahui. And we saw it with iwi roadblocks. We saw it with the um, uh, iwi providers, Māori doing, so, you know, deciding what was going to change in the tikan on marae. We see the rangatiratanga space in action. There is some discussions we need to have about where Māori providers fit in, where do they fit in with um, Crown contracts, are they good contracts? So, And then we have um, another discussion where we have to have about, um, uh, you know, iwi themselves that might come under a trust or they might come under a, a government mm. legislation. What does that mean? What are the constraints that are on them and their rangatiratanga, our rangatiratanga, because of that? So we've... We've got some business to do ourselves. But I think in the rangatiratanga space, we, it, it's still alive. I think they're trying to control it a bit at times. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that was a bit of a rave. Did it make sense? No, 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 no. No, um, no I, and I understand that clearly, to be honest. And I was going to ask you about COVID response, given your role as co-chair of Te Rupi Whakakaupapuruta, because I saw that as... Um, actually having a, you know, a, a range of things that Tūpū Whakakaupapa Urutā was trying to do. But in particular, given that role, you know, I, I was keen to see and hear what you felt about the way in which iwi whānau hapu reacted um, and whether or not that was rangatiratanga and actually in advance of that. The other bit I, that, that worried me, though, about that was the influence or not that you were able to have on the crown in terms of what it was doing in that kawanatanga space for us mm. and whether or not they were taking on board the advice of the likes of yourselves and others who are in Tūrūpūwhaka who are our experts advocating on our behalf, whether or not they took that advice or not because it seems to me there were lots of occasions where they did not. It became paradigm and principle over people mm. and, you know, it became political rather than people driven. Mm. And what was that like? If I was being kind, I would say that during COVID, perhaps the Crown, the government, needed to have one, one mission, one piece of advice, one source of truth, because moving a whole population is hard enough without having any um, fiddle-faddle either side, without having any differences. However, it was our responsibility to point out that the most at-risk people, for a number of reasons, from participation in the essential workforce through to um, previous illness, etc., um, was us. And we also held some solutions because of our rangatiratanga overspaces. So um, that was, to me, a lot of it was the one-size-fits-all. Mm. And one size fits all leads to inequities. And especially if it's going to lead to increased inequities for us, we needed to speak up. It became obvious that they weren't going to, because they were in, what, committed to the simple singular solution, they weren't going to necessarily have flexibility for our needs. And so um, how do we manage that? And so and communicating to iwi became, uh, communicating to Māori, Māori providers became part of that. Did that become obvious pretty quickly? Um, I think so. I, I think it was pretty obvious that they were going to have this one, the singular uh, response. Well, uh, how frustrating was that? 
given experience, expertise, given Māori experience, yeah. 1918 influenza. Yeah. No, um, frustrating but not unexpected. So, but what I was more interested in was the way in which Māori mobilised mm. from iwi to hapu and marae to Māori providers. Yeah, I was, that was amazing. But not without challenge, not without some obstruction, yeah. not without some interruption yeah. by, let's be honest, government. Yeah. And also the problem with their one-size-fits-all model was very middle class. We were always going, what about prisons? Oh, just lock them down. Mm, that's not very healthy. Uh, what about people with... Um, drug and alcohol, mental health, you know, staying home is going to be difficult. And um, so, and the people involved in those worlds, there was no, there was no ability. It was only when, um, you know, they then became um, housed at Jet Park that they realised they might have a problem mm. with people who had different needs, even though we were raising that with our, um, with people who we were meeting with. Yeah. Well, the other part I want to pick up on that is, I mean, the government took an approach about homelessness and invested. And, you know, the, obviously there are some other challenges that accrued as a result of that, um, the implementation of that approach. But it saw a problem, threw money at it, and yeah. for some, fixed that problem. Why doesn't that happen when it comes to Māori health outcomes? Why, why, why given... You know, even post-COVID, we know 38% of those under 60 who passed away as a result of COVID, that's us. Mm -hmm. Biggest population by far. What, why, why isn't that same approach taken when it comes to our health needs and requirements and the outcomes that we seek? Because if you deal with that problem in the same way, you get to fix that problem. I know it's not just resource, no. but if you, have, if, if you have the same point of focus, though, and approach... That goes a long way, doesn't it, Papa? You, you know the time we're in at the moment. We're in the three yearly election cycle. Mm -hmm. And you know it was it was um, the leader of the ACT Party gave away when we tried to say Māori vaccines, come and get them earlier, some leader of a political party gave away the code. Um so there was always this resistance that Māori must not have anything, even though what we have is higher death rates. Um, we have this um, this really problematic thinking about inequity that they think we get and want more than what everyone else is getting. They actually don't see that we get less and that um, any levelling of the playing field is um, Māori getting more and all that sort of shroud-waving that happens. And it particularly happens in, a, in the silly season of electioneering. Yeah. And that happens ev far too often every three years. So what's that like, so, though, when, when...? So we can't do anything because it becomes a political football. When you had someone who, who went to Northland, all of a sudden a leader of another political party uh, is naming someone in a, um, you know, in a Māori gang saying this is, uh, this is gangs and people are going across the border. Not even true, but creating this drama and creating this news and feeding this, um, this really violent um, understanding of New Zealanders um, that Māori are getting something they're not getting. But that, the, so that's the environment. Yeah. So how do we make sure that we get what we need, get what we justly deserve, get equity without um, being undone or being undermined by people who have it in their um, in electoral needs, in their voting needs to, you know, that's going to get them some votes if they can expose that. It's quite ah. pathetic. So how do, we, how do we balance that? 
How do we steer this course where we're demanding our rights, but other people are saying demanding your rights means uh, somebody's not going to get their operation because you're going to get yours first. So, so are people not seeing the inequity? They or choose not to. Or otherwise, they have, um, they have decided that the system, because they can't see the system is broken because it works perfectly well for them, they think there's something wrong with you as a Māori or me as a Māori mm. that I've got bad behaviour or I've got bad genes or I'm just badly um, bad, not deserving enough. Yeah. Um, so, so they have this excuse in their mind. They can't see the literature, can't see the analysis, they can't see them, well, they choose not to see it because it's, it's there, um, they want a simple answer to why should Māori have, get their operation, you know, get more um, scoring and and who gets the next operation. They want a simple analysis as opposed to understanding the complexity. And they don't want to believe us, the people who've done the research. It's very complex, but there's an inequity in there. There's something unfair about the way it's judged. You need to be able to... Um, manage that, you need to level the playing field. I hate that. Yeah, yeah. I think you've talked previously about the bravery to act on, on what is obvious through the scholarship and the research in the academia. So the question then becomes, how do we build, notice how I'm not saying you, how do we help build that bravery to act? Mm. And I, is that possible, plausible, probable? Well, it has to happen. And so I think the more people who can understand how it happens, understand the causal pathway, understand, you know, um, which is supported by huge amounts of literature, um, understand what that happen what happens, how it happens, and what does it mean, and the unfairness of the injustice of that. Mm. So they should at least understand the moral and ethical argument. There's also a financial argument that it actually costs millions and millions of dollars to keep people sick. Um, but both arguments are, you know, you should act on the moral argument. You don't you shouldn't need a financial argument for it. But there are some parties that say they're fiscally responsible as their primary thing. So they should act on inequities because it's the right thing to do and it also is... Um, fiscally responsible thing to act on inequities. So why? Um, yeah. It's, I, get, I think people are ultimately self-interested, mm. <laughs> sadly. And so you will always have a majority that's self-interested. And, um, yeah. In a public with a public health system, they they want they want their vaccine first, they want their um, operation first, they want um, you know they want their cancer dealt with as soon as possible. There's a perception internationally within the indigenous community that I hear that New Zealand is a world leader in the way that it works with its indigenous population. With Tangata Whenua. Given what we've just been talking about, but given also um, the knowledge that I think some of your Indigenous peers and colleagues have of our situation in Aotearoa, do they do they think that's the case? I mean, internationally, does it stack up? Are, are we a world leader in the way in which we, as a country, work with our Indigenous population and focus on those key issues around health and education and all the like. Is, is that what they think they see us as? Or or are we behind Pabarangi by comparison to other Indigenous communities? I think it's a false analysis. Oh, okay. Because... This is good. I thought I was hoping we get that. <laughs> uh, it's a race to the bottom. Yeah. You know, who wants to be the worst of the best or the best of the worst or something like that? There is, um, I think, um, Professor Ian Anderson and Bridget Robson uh, led a, a big research um, that was published in The Lancet about different Indigenous groups uh, and, and health and wellbeing statistics throughout what that, 
statistics that were available. And I think there was only one Indigenous group that where the statistics were equitable um, of those that were measured, and the rest of us had very uh, significant inequities. But it wasn't a race. Everybody, mm. it shows that there is something happening internationally. Um, so who wants to win that race? Mm. Um, we should be asking how, why aren't we doing better than the non-Indigenous people in our land? Because after all, it's our land and um, we didn't have to travel to get here or, you know, not recently in a leaky boat. Uh, so why aren't we doing better? Um, that would be my understanding. So, And is that shared thinking within the Indigenous uh, community? Is that the same perspective and approach? Or is that us because we have this rangatiratanga notion that sits with us and has sat with us for a long time? Um, no, I think... Every indigenous group I've met has a rangatiratanga notion that they're hoping to operationalise to the max. Mm. Um, and we've all got different opportunities and different pushbacks. Um, I think that we tend to enjoy that statistic a bit too much. Mm. I think we tend to think, oh, we, we love that sort of praise, but actually we should stop mm. because we've got so much more work to do. And um, we should be thinking of, you know, what, what for Carl, what, what way of operating have they got that we can use and adopt? How, what, what wars have they won that we should be learning from, from, from everybody? Give me an example. Um, I'm really fascinated with um, uh, in in Australia, um, you know, sixty to 120,000 years of um, living culture. How do, you, how do you keep that alive? Um, how, how do you, um, you know, while we might be able to discuss language revitalization, you know, how do you keep culture alive for 60,000 years? Yeah, I'm interested in that. Um, what does that mean? They have survived um, climate change. What lessons have they got for us? We need them. Yeah, so we've got things to learn from so many people. Hmm. Has everyone ever asked you to go into politics? Yes, <laughs> I'm afraid so. And the answer was? No. <laughs> and why was the answer no? Oh, it's such an ugly business, isn't it? Absolutely. It's so yeah. ugly. Um, and also, is that the best use of your time and energy and thinking? It could be a way of having a direct impact in the bravery conversation that we talked about and the understanding of the analysis and the situation relating to inequity. Direct involvement. Direct communication. Oh, yeah, but that arena is not an arena of um, thought. That arena is, um, is a, um, well, you know, it's, it's manu corridor, isn't it? <laughs> it's a debate chamber. <laughs> um, and maybe it should be you, not me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think... Um, yeah, it's a sparring arena. And um, yes, maybe there's some policy stuff that you can progress, um, but I think it's never appealed to me because of the um, argy-bargy yeah. of it all. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, it just I just wonder how you deal with things like, well, going back to the COVID example, when... The consequences of an action are borne out by what happens in the end. And we talked about that statistic of us being the highest population of those who passed under the age of 60. And how do you deal with that? Mm. Because this is a reoccurring thing. The lack of action, the consequence of an action, when you as an academic, as a researcher, as an expert with the experience, trying to chart the pathway to say, if you don't take this course of action, this is where we will end up. That happens. Yeah. And how you deal with that? 
and how you recharge and have to go again. Yeah. But um, the thing is we made a lot of um, – we, we made a lot of um, – we engaged with a lot of colleagues. Uh, we built a lot of networks. Um, I think Māori providers showed muscle and showed potential, developed um, – and so I think there's a lot of things that went forward, um, progressed with COVID. A lot of there was a lot of Māori development. There was a lot of faith we had in um, in our networks, um, in our responsiveness on Marae to our engagement with Komatu and providing them with food, providing people with. Um, I think that uh, has helped us. Um, exercising those muscles of rangatiratanga actually when the floods came. Um, you know, I, yeah, I think that um, it, despite that, that was probably going to happen anyway. Yeah. Um, and we had a little win. Yeah. Um, we had a little win in pushing for equity on some, um, the way in which Diabetes medic, the new diabetes medication were rolled out and getting age responsiveness in there. So I think we had, was it ever going to be a pure um, tiriti or waitangi response? Probably not. If I was generous. If I was, yes, they could have listened to us and yes, we could have done better. And, but um, I don't think they were organisationally ready to do that. So I think we were always going to have a little bit of stuff on the side. But in doing that, Māori got busy. Yeah. Māori exercised muscle. Māori developed a whole lot of networks. Māori um, did great things. Yeah. And I think that has built us. You make a really good point around emergency response and, and what happened with, with the climate, uh, climate events this year. And it just seems to me that um, when that response is required, um, the community, not just Māori, the community relies on us mm -hmm. to do that. And we do that, as you say, really well, not just with COVID, but also, as I say, those recent climate events. But then it feels like, and I don't know how you feel, then it feels like, thank you for that. You know, jump back in your treaty box and do our mihi whakatau <laughs> and do our karakia and bless the food. And that's a really pejorative way of looking at yeah, it. But that's what it feels like. <laughs> And maybe that's just because of, as you say, election cycle. But I wonder if you feel that too. Mm -hmm. Whether or not we actually are continuing to progress onto that tangatiratanga pathway or it happens in fits and spurts. Taitimu taipani. How very hokian of you. Yeah, the tide goes in and the tide... You know, as we approach an election... Um, that mightn't end up the way I would like to design it. Um, that's how we have to think about things. The tide goes in and the tide goes out. And how do we hold our ground? And if we have to lose ground, can we choose what ground we lose? That's, and then how do we get ready for the next time the tide comes in? That's, um, that's how you stay sane. Does it feel like there has been a lot of progress in, and development, though, for you over the 30, 40 years? Vicious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say 1970s by my maths, and that makes you about 40-something. Um, does it feel that progress has been made? I know that's a really cliched way of putting it. Absolutely. Do, do you know what I mean? You, okay. What, what makes you say that? Um, I think progress in our analysis, progress in our um, thinking, uh, progress in um, Māori providers, uh, progress in our um, our ability to laugh in the face of it all, because <laughs> uh, that's our survival skill. How else do we survive? I think um, progress in things like we know now, and we're able to say clearly now, we ne people deserve a warm home, mm. a warm, dry home. Children deserve a warm, dry home. 
children deserve not to be hungry. We've progressed in a number of things. We've progressed and we now know that the biggest thing we're going to face is climate, is a planetary crisis. Mm. That we have progressed and that we know that uh, indigenous knowledge holds a key um, to Matauranga Māori holds a key to planetary survival. So we've progressed in so many ways. Um, you know, uh, yes, sure, there's still inequities and there's still um, big challenges. We still have um, a shocking level of incarceration of police state issues in terms of the monitoring of Māori. So we still have a number of issues that are still not delivering. Um, the education system is still not delivering for Māori. The health system is still under-delivering for us. Mm. So yeah, there's plenty of work still to do, mm. but I still have to have some hope yeah. um, that we've learned in my lifetime, we've learned some really important lessons. And I think the other thing I was going to add was progress in workforce development and the number of us yep. involved directly uh, in health and, and well-being and medicine and the like, sometimes directly. <laughs> where, uh, you know, where one's own tamariki are now directly involved <laughs> in the workforce, and I wonder what that's like. Um, and, you know, people sometimes raise the issue of, um, did they ever have a choice? But what's <laughs> that like to have someone, of one of your own, involved directly now? And is that some, a pathway you forged or just something that was... Oh, yes. I, I did ask him, I did ask him, um, this is Tahi we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, my, I did ask my son, oh, um, when he graduated, I said, now, um, are you, am I going to have to pay for a lot of counselling because your mother <laughs> made you be a doctor? He said, no, mum, I'm all right. <laughs> so that was good to clear that up. <laughs> um, you know, actually, it doesn't sound maternalistic if I say that um, the vast majority of um, the people who graduate from our university, I feel really proud of them. Um, I feel um, that the team, we've a sense of achievement um, and a sense of satisfaction. Um, so, And the challenges, um, you know, my last speech to them, or I always end by saying, love our people. By the way, you didn't graduate in law. You're not the judge. Love our people. Just like you, you know, you you love your children, even if you think sometimes they've done some bad stuff you wish they hadn't <laughs> done. But, you know, uh, we have to have that love for our people. And so um, I feel not just whether or not you're genetically connected to them, yeah. but actually um, go and do good work for our people. Yeah. Mm. It does appear to me that... Um, not just for Tahi, but for Kahu as well. There's a love for their people. And not just us, but, you know, our Indigenous brothers and sisters as well. Well, and some of the work that Kahu's doing. Yeah. Um, I think we have to have analysis. I, I think one of the best things that we can um, give our children is, you know, an, an education's very useful, but also an analysis. Mm. And, you know, drag your kids to those protests. <laughs> drag them, drag them, kicking and screaming. Um, you know, drag them to kura. Um, you know, um, and then you say to them, takes, uh, it takes one generation to lose the language, it takes three generations. By the way, you are number one. So I want your kids <laughs> and your kids, so you've got to pass that on. So it's going to take more than three generations to save the planet. So what are we going to do about that? It's going to take more than 
you know, three generations to turn around some of the Māori health statistics. So how do we make sure that our kids have an analysis and have an, understand the right to protest, understand the right to stand, make a stand, hold the line, yeah, push. That's what, that's, um, that's bringing up your kids, isn't it? I mean, you know, that's, that's what I learned when I went to, grew up in those times of protest. I learned, yeah, I, I loved Titify because she, the accepted tradition was this is polite and that's where polite ends. And she was like, oh no, this is where it ends. It's, and we go over there. Forget polite, we have rights. And that's where the rights are. So I, I loved waking up to that, forget polite, polite is colonisation holding you back, uh, rights are over here, go for your rights. So yeah, th those are important things for our kids to know and for our students to know, yeah. Anyway, that was a bit of a rave. No, I, I just, um, <laughs> no, no, I, um, I, I think it's, it's a really good point. Um, because we miss those people mm. that keep challenging us. Yeah, and and, and, and Hilda too on her. Yeah. I remember Hilda's work on um, nuclear free Pacific. Oh. You know, and how important that is right now. You know, wow. Well, as someone who has long admired people who have shown in everything that they do, um, a love for our people. <clears throat> um, I want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to share your love for our people with us and the work that you do. And um, long may it continue. Te Te